Welcome to episode 23 of the Water Word Podcast. I want to start off by thanking my listeners for your support. Many of you have sent kind words of encouragement. Some of you have even sent monetary support. And for that, I'm so thankful. I'm inspired when you're inspired. I believe you will enjoy this conversation. Uh, It's recorded against the backdrop of students returning to school. Now, whether you're a student, a teacher, an administrator, or a parent, there are many concerns and paramount among those are those of safety and effectiveness. And my guest, Ms. Cordelia Anthony, does a tremendous job of walking us through what March looked like and what August and September may look like for returning students. Just a little bit about her. She was born in Antigua. Her family migrated to the United States in 1984. She developed a love for science at an early age and her love for teaching was cemented when she was a student at the Stony Brook University. She's been a teacher at the Farmingdale High School since 1999 and she's currently the president of the Farmingdale Federation of Teachers and a New York State United Teachers board member. Cordelia is also a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Join me in welcoming Cordelia Anthony to the Waterware Podcast. Thank you, I appreciate the invitation. What led you into the field of education? So, well, in terms of education, I've always loved school. I was um, born in Antigua and I went to a Montessori school. That's the first school I remember. And then from there to an Adventist school in Antigua before we left and moved here. And I was just the kid that woke my parents up to get me to go to school. I wanted to go to school badly. Don't ask me why, what I thought school was, but um, I had a good time from the first time I was in school. And so um, I was always a pretty good student. My parents made that a priority. Education was, you know, that's what was going to do everything for us when we moved here. Um, They sacrificed and put me in an Adventist school here um, all the way through high school. And I had really good teachers. And as you can imagine, I didn't have some good teachers. You know, um, I got to college and I loved science. That was my like passion, still is, um, specifically biology. And so initially I thought I was going to go in the health professions. That was, you know, my mom is a retired nurse. That was just, I'm going to do one of those health professions. I went to uh, Stony Brook and that was a shock for me, truthfully, um, coming out of private schools into a public school for the first time. Um, My parents let me dorm there. I graduated a little earlier. I was 16 when I started college there. And so I didn't even think they'd let me dorm there, truthfully, Um, but they did. And it was a good experience. It actually was a really good um, experience for me. And it was a way for me to kind of develop myself a little differently outside of, you know, kind of the mom and dad, because I'm an only child, so it was just us. Um, but as I was there, I kind of started volunteering at hospitals, just to, you know, they, this is going to look good, I'm going to do that. Um, over the summers, I would volunteer at New York Presbyterian, where my mom um, was working at. And I don't like sick people, right? Um, I started getting to the, it was like great to be there. I was, you know, helping, because some of the nurses were my mom's friends, they would um, let me do things and show, you know, show me. And I was like, these people are sick. 
I was like, oh no, but I love biology. Let me see what else biology can do for me if I'm not going into health professions specifically. And I looked at research and I looked at a lot of other things, but I think the teaching aspect hit me more like my senior year when I participated, a professor asked me to help participate in a program that was allowing middle school and high school kids to come on campus and students were helping them do science experiments. And she was like, hey, check this out if you're interested. And I went and did it and that was it. That was like the joy of that. And I was like, you know what? This, this is probably what I'm gonna be doing. <laughs> So that was a big shift because, you know, my parents were definitely looking for an, an, another health professional person, but um, I told them I loved it. And so they supported me. And how was Stony Brook coming from the private schools that you went to prior? So State University of New York at Stony Brook uh, in 1993. Um, it was definitely eye-opening because, Brian, even in, you know, you know, private schools, Seventh-day Adventist schools, to be specific, I was sheltered. Let's, let's be realistic, even though, you know, I would get on a train and go all the way to Woodside, Queens, to go to Great New York, you know, I, I was sheltered. There was no, my, who my friends were, you know, not every student at SDA schools are SDA, that's fine. But a state school, um, public school, and just not having that hands-on small you know, my graduating high school class was maybe 40 of us, you know what I mean? Into a situation where I was in a lecture hall with a balcony for my like 100 general level classes. And I was, I thought like, I'm gonna be lost. I had gotten the chance the summer before starting to be in a, um, a cohort group uh, called C-STEP, uh, Collegiate Science Technology Entry Program. So at least I knew those people, so when I, official semester started, I had at least a few built-in friends that made me a little bit more secure because I think I would have probably felt like I was drowning. Not so much academically, because I was just, I was just knowing that I'm not going to fail. That, you know, the mentality of, you know, everybody else, I don't know what their parents were going to do if they fail, but I know I wasn't going to fail and go home to my parents with any failing grades. So there was a gap there. I will admit, like I had, I studied a lot. Um, and, you know, started as a bio major and finished as a bio major, which is not easy to do at Stony Brook because everyone wants to go to Stony Brook medical school or dental school or PA school. So the biology uh, situation there was, was intense. And you mentioned a turning point where the school had a program where they were expo exposing middle school students to, was it to the sciences? To the sciences. So it was almost like a field trip for those kids. They come on campus. Um, they get to do, you know, touch equipment that they wouldn't have at their school, um, at their middle school or high school. And it was mostly middle schoolers. And it was one of those, you know, light bulb uh, kind of lab demo setups. I'm like, let me show you guys. This is really. And I said, this is this is um, eye opening for me that I liked it so much because the focus for maybe the first two, two and a half years there was I'm going into, you know, PA program, PT program, nursing, med school, something, um, I'm going in that direction. And when I had to pivot from that, it wasn't a quick, like, it wasn't a quick thing. It was like, okay, I'm going to finish this biology degree. There were a lot of, you know, job fairs and people were looking for students 
from Stony Brook to come and work at, you know, biological research companies and environmental companies. And, you know, I would go to job fairs and I was like, I'm going to work in a lab. Am I going to be in a cubicle, like testing if this is going to be allergic to people, you know, because so many different companies that I went and, you know, talked, uh, talked with, but I didn't know exactly. And that was, I think, yeah, my junior or senior year before I did that uh, little enrichment program. Um, so that was awesome. And I'm sure the significance isn't lost on you now that you are taking a very important step in terms of showing students the end game in terms of what a teacher could look like when done. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, at, at that time, you know, um, I didn't realize where I would end up teaching when I was even though sending out resumes, I didn't realized that I would be a unique teacher in the environment that I was, I was, I just so happened I had decided to stay after I graduated with my bachelor's, I decided to stay at Stony Brook and get my master's. And, you know, that even more solidified what I was going to do, get my teaching certification. And, you know, you do what you do. Next step is putting out resumes. You have your master's, you're going to get started. And, I was, I ended up living off campus. Um, so I was living in Long Island. So it just made sense to me to send resumes out in Long Island. Did not recognize that I would be one of, you know, in a lot of, <laughs> in a lot of areas in a lot of districts here on Long Island. Um, and yeah, and that I would be like, oh, an example of, hey, she was successful. You could be successful. I didn't, I didn't know that that's what I would be because going to the schools and living in the Bronx and my church and, you know, I was just like everybody else, basically, y'all trying to do the same thing. So yeah, it has been a change. Absolutely. So you did your master's at Stony Brook as well? Mm -hmm. Wow. And by that time you were locked into becoming an educator. That was it. It was like a master's program, but the concentration was in teaching and teaching certification. So. Mm. Do you still enjoy teaching after, is it 20 plus years now? 20 plus years. I started in 1999 teaching. Yep. And you still enjoy it? I still enjoy being in the classroom and teaching. It's the, the actual teaching the kids and having that conversation and developing that rapport and getting them to go on the journey of learning with you because they're not all starting at the same place. Um, teaching has changed a lot since 1999, I'll be very honest. Um, and what, what the expectations are for a teacher at this point is, is a lot, you know, you know, we're watching out for bullying, we're watching out for abuse, we're watching out, you know, we have become a lot. Um, and sometimes that distracts from, hey, I'm your biology teacher, let's get, you know, find out inquire let's you know follow the scientific method let's figure out how this is going to play out in other parts of your life because science is everywhere and you know the things that i want to do and the exuberance i want to show for science and specifically biology and you know make them aware that they don't all have to be excelling at the same pace rate but that you know they're different from when they were in the beginning you know just like the whole shaping and helping to shape if possible some of the students i love that but there's a lot behind the scenes of education that has changed in the last 20 years for sure and some of it's been frustrating and you know you try to teach around it sounds crazy <laughs> uh but the the expectations are different and i'm not saying there shouldn't be expectations 
um, for sure, but they're asking a lot nowadays, in my opinion, of if I was a new, young, 20-year-old, 21-year, you know, graduating, I, I would take a look at teaching, but I don't know. Uh, even the, you know, the tests and develop things to get into teaching now, so hard. And so we're, we're getting to a point where there could be a teacher shortage soon. So in New York specifically, too. So you teach at a high school in Long Island? Yes. What grades do you teach? Primarily for, for biology, like general level uh, living environment, I should say, uh, as ninth and 10th graders mostly. But um, every few years or so, I'll teach an elective course. I used to teach AP Bio at a certain point. Um, I taught an environmental class. Uh, last couple of years, my elective that I taught was forensics, which was awesome because I enjoyed learning about it too. So those uh, students tend to be upperclassmen, 11th graders, 12th graders, because they're taking elective science courses. What are the demographics of the students that you teach? At so the district is actually, made, as is Long Island, made up, cut very interestingly geographically. So um, there's three towns, uh, North Amityville, North Massapequa, and then Farmingdale that make up kids from those areas come to the high school, just the way they um, cut this district. And so we have predominantly white students, but maybe percentage-wise, I want to say we're probably up to about 10% Black, uh, maybe around 10 or 11% Hispanic or Latinx students. And then there's a small minority of like East Indian or Asian students. Like, you know, we have um, a pretty big uh, program for English language learners. So students that are new entrants to the country, you know, just depending. Um, but it's a pretty big program. I'm, I'm more familiar with that as well because one of my sections usually is a collaborative course with students that are ENL students and regular ed in the same class, all trying to take this living environment course and pass the regents at the end of the year. So it's a pretty interesting mix, but it is predominantly white. How is living environment different than biology? Is it one and the same or? It's pretty much what you and I took as biology, except even, so the year I started teaching was the development, um, New York State Education Department started developing the course towards living environment. And the main differences are that we spend a bit more time focusing on environmental causes. I think the state wanted to create some, um, some students who were looking out for the planet. Let me put it to you that way. So there was a bigger stress put on our responsibility as humans living here to take care of the ecosystem, protect the ecosystem, to try to slow down the damage we've done. And I would say the units like that went up and uh, the, the units that are more biological, physiology, um, anatomy, where they needed to know, you know, all the bones, let's say that there was less stress based on that. So we still have those units, but I, the way I would say percentage wise, it's much less of that and a bit more of environmental. And I'm assuming based on where the school is located, that it's probably well-resourced? 
Is that too big an assumption? No, you're not wrong. It's not the highest wealth district. It's not among, so we're not in among the Roslins of the world. There's some districts out here that are very high wealth districts. Um, we're really, honestly, middle low. We are more, um, I would say we've had a good series of superintendents and um, assistant superintendents for business who have managed to fiscally keep us uh, doing well. And we are definitely way more privileged than some other districts like neighboring us. So once again, that's a Long Island weird thing that we can talk about another day, but the way they are cutting, you know, you literally cross some tracks and you're in a different town and what their taxes are don't allow for certain special things that my district has. And so it's, um, you know, it's a weird thing to see because it's definitely, um, definitely a lot based on on race in a lot of areas out here. Uh, the difference between like an all black town, just about um, a black Hispanic town versus a, a more mixed town or school district like mine, the, you know, how much the taxes are, how much they're paying for school taxes affects what resources the students are, are, are pretty much allotted and that affects what they can do. What did March look like in Farmingdale High School. So March, as we started hearing, you know, what was going on, it was uh, almost like a organized panic because it was, hmm, there are probably people here who have this. Because we started hearing, you know, about children being asymptomatic back then. But it was, you know, you didn't hear much. A person had heard of oh, it was in one school somewhere and they closed the school for the day and cleaned it and they reopened. And at a certain point though, as the numbers started jumping, it was, it was chaotic because, you know, people's children's schools were closing. So they had to call in sick. It just, the dominoes just kept falling and, you know, we were trying to not um, overly make the students anxious because they were hearing, you know, different things varying. You, you now know that households did not all believe the same thing. And uh, so who thought it was a hoax that wasn't really happening? It was elsewhere. Um, and the people that were already knowing, you know, having more information whose parents were working in the health professions that were like, no, no, pe people are dying. And so we spent a lot of time trying, I think we spent time trying to ignore it, but in a science class, I couldn't. So um, we did almost daily have a conversation about, well, you know, viruses and here's, you know, it was tried to make it a teachable moment, but it was very, um, it was a lot of anxiety. It was a lot of anxiety and, you know, they increased cleaning in the building. So the custodians, I saw them more than I ever did in my life. They were wiping down doorknobs and um, locker handles and trying to clean the bathroom. So it, they tried to implement as much as we could with what we knew back in March. And I should let our listeners know that you're now wearing, by this time already, you're wearing multiple hats. You're a teacher who teaches science, but you're also a union rep. Yes. So that's union head, head of the union, yes, sir. Yes. Yes. So that that other part, <laughs> that other part got a little uh, 
got a little interesting as well because it was trying to talk to the superintendent. Yeah, so I'm, I'm the president of the Farmingdale Federation of Teachers. So we have about 550 teachers in the district, right? So I do feel responsible for the teachers. So that was a thing as I was trying to listen to members' um, concerns, as I am now about returning, right? Um, and not panic, but share the concerns. And people were married to first responders who were saying, well, I think I have to quarantine. So it was a daily outside of dealing with the students. I also spend a lot of time and I do have some release time to deal with teachers and the teacher issues. So that did, March was the start of that and uh, trying to figure out how to properly represent the teachers' concerns, their anxieties, their fears, um, and still do the day-to-day -day teaching. And so we left on that Friday kind of like, oh, they're gonna deep clean the building and then blah, blah, blah. Well, maybe we'll be off Monday and then it was over. <laughs> you know, it was just like lockdown. And then came, how do we teach like this? It was just jump into that next Monday where they're like, luckily, you said we had some resources. Our school was already a Google school. We already had Google Classroom. We were already using it maybe grades six through 12, not so much the elementary schools. We have um, four elementary schools, one middle school, one high school. So, it, you know, the elementary teachers didn't really have a table to build on. You know, initially they were just like, we got to get some packets to the houses of the kids. Um, the six through 12 also had one-to-one -one Chromebooks. The district's able to afford that. So those students all already had a Chromebook. So we could jump on and be like, hey, God, you know, not in school. We're, gonna, we're not going to be in school. But once again, the elementary were at a disadvantage. And it took, you know, a, a week or two for the school to send home Chromebooks. They had class sets um, to, to people's houses. And, but it was a lot. It was a lot of unknown and what to do and how to do it and how much and, you know, cameras in people's homes and what you didn't or did or want to see. And it, it was a lot trying to manage in March. And you're learning now, and you probably were aware already prior to the shutdown that not all students were on equal footing. And how did those disparities manifest during the shutdown? It was more glaring. It was already, like I said, I have, you know, a mixed variety of students. Um, my students that are English language learners, they did not keep up as well. You know, um, depending on your wealth, your level of wealth, your parents may or may not have lost their jobs during the shutdown. Um, they were already dealing with, you know, we already knew, even though I gave you a Chromebook, I don't know if you have Wi-Fi at home. It's nice that you have that Chromebook and you might be able to do some things offline. But if, you know, we always were sensitive to if I give a digital assignment and they have to go to a website, did they get there? You know, could they have to try it on their phone and not have the same? Um, and that just became glaring. It became glaring. Also, a lot of students, um, no matter what class, became caretakers if their parents were first responders or they were working. And then even some of the students took on jobs because a parent lost a job. So they were 
bagging groceries, they were cashiers, they were delivering food, you know, depending on their age. Um, and so they weren't primarily focused on logging on to my class is what I'm saying um, at, at, you know, 8 a.m. or wherever, whatever time we were supposed to meet up because of those issues or they were helping their sibling log on to their class so they weren't joining me because their, their you know, seven-year-old little brother needed help figuring out this Chromebook and learning. So it became really, you know, the, the homes where there's a stay-at-home mom or parents that were remotely working, even though that sure was chaotic. All you parents, God bless you. I, I don't know. All the, 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 the sacrifice of trying to work and trying to help your child. But, um, you know, at least I knew in those homes, somebody was yelling at a child to get on the computer. You know, isn't it time for your class? But not every home had that just that inequity magnified. Absolutely. We saw the memes and some of them, I think, on, its, on their face were intended to be humorous. But I think the underlying... At, at the root of it were some emotional challenges for some families. I mean, there's that meme that says, and just like that, there is no beating in the home or beating in the school or, yes, yes, yes. or there's no prayer in school, what have you, because various families were challenged Ooh. the shutdown. I can only imagine, depending on how your school was able to roll this out, I mean, if you posted an assignment and the parent had to help open it, figure out what it was, you know, blah, blah, blah. If you were not on live like this back and forth synchronously to say, oh, okay, let me help you with that. And every school was figuring out what was the best thing, you know, um, just privacy for the student, privacy of your own home and what's going on in the background. They were trying to figure it out slowly and some came around by you know april-ish into may before it was like okay we, we can try having class at 7 30 a.m and see who comes to my class online so it was i can't imagine parents really opening up assignments um and trying to help and assist kids to do that work and keeping them engaged or trying to keep them engaged for for hours at a time um, I still don't know how elementary teachers do it. They're different. They're a different breed of people. I always say that, you know, for me, I have snippets of time, uh, 40 or 80 minutes for lab days um, with the students and a new bunch rot rotates in. But being with those same students all day. So these poor parents having to, you know, wake them up, sit them in front of a computer, tutor in between trying to work and yeah, and keeping that child focused when it's, it wasn't the setting. That's not their, the setting they learn in, so struggle. And then you have the ninth to 10th graders, the upperclassmen who don't have a desire to be with parents in the home all day anyway. So there's also that component. Yeah, I, I saw so many interesting things. I mean, because at a certain point when the schools realized or when they asked us to report on attendance and, you know, if I had a class of 30 and I got 10, that was a good day. That was, that was an exciting period where I said 10 out of 30 are here, you know, 
their um, clocks changed. You know, they didn't have to wake up as early to catch a bus to school, so they stayed up later and they whatever, whatever the you know, whatever they did. So when we were trying to have class and we had delayed it, so I think we went from seven thirty start to like nine o'clock or nine thirty start for like first period, and they couldn't wake up. So we started calling homes, emailing parents. You know, haven't seen. Could you get your child on? Oh, he's in there. Could you go wake him up? You know, like this, the, we're just having these conversations. But after a certain while, I think the parents were tired. I think, I think after, you know, a few weeks of get up, it's nine o'clock, you know, they were just exhausted. And so I would get work from students at 3, 4 a.m. They'd turn some stuff in. I hadn't seen them face to face on the screen in weeks, but they were no longer on a schedule. And we were trying to um, show grace because we didn't know what was going on in every home. We didn't know if students, some students had told us about illnesses and deaths of family members, not asking you for the homework. You know, um, some students, you know, had all, all kinds of other things going on. So we were trying to be respectful, but we still were told we had to give a grade of some sort. We had to have expectations, um, but but to try to be as, I guess, compassionate as possible, given it's a pandemic. It was, you know, we were pandemic, what I call crisis teaching. It was, you know, try to keep them on a schedule, try to keep them engaged, have them see their classmates, some, you know, social emotional contact. And, and that, that's primarily what we were trying to do Yet, you know, some people were teaching college level courses and AP exams were still happening. They canceled state exams and regions, but that for some kids was like, whew. Others, it was like, ha I'm free. There is no exit exam. So it actually, you know, they did it for a good reason considering what was going on, but it actually made some kids check out, you know, knowing that they didn't have that all year, this big test we keep telling them about anymore. Um, they were just like, oh, okay, school's over, you know, so it was tough trying to keep them, keep them every day. We will return after a short break. You describe on the one hand, parents, students who are unraveling, and I think we're putting it lightly because the emotional impact, you probably oh. know better than most what's what will what will be revealed later on when when the dust settles so mm -hmm. but you're also the president of the union um, dealing with the demands administrators are putting on teachers during this uncertain time how are you dealing with that arm of man right from then till now if i didn't have a faith um, I don't know. I, I'd be one of those people who would, you know, I saw the memes of people like they've been drinking since 9 a.m. It was, it is, it was, it is still right now a lot because, you know, you had um, parents, you know, these teachers are parents too. So they were trying to teach and still also trying to help their children do their work. So the expectations kept getting added on as time went on and you know we all want to do the best but it didn't turn into you know we have a contract that says we work seven hours <laughs> and then if you're working extra you're probably doing a club and you're getting paid extra you know like 
you you always graded i mean the reality is you always graded outside of your work hours you all you were prepping lessons more than likely outside of your workouts but this was now like parents were calling back and forth i my son didn't get you felt compelled to reach out to parents when they got home from work at eight it was kids were sending work at 10 or 11 you wanted them to get some feedback so you're answering at that time it became really tough and most of us are just easy going um we love kids we knew it was a struggle and we were just going with the flow but you know we went from having you know meetings maybe bi-weekly with um administrators to like almost every other day it was like oh the science director and now i have to talk to my principal and you're on these uh google meets you know you it just was endless it was definitely um important during the whole time to keep um kind of be transparent with the membership and try to communicate with them like i know that you're working hard i really tr trust me i fully understand that this is not normal um, this is not what we would normally agree to. I would not ever normally agree to tell somebody to open up a camera into their house um, because their child can walk naked back from the bathroom. You know, it was just like you felt, what's the liability if something happens? And so it was super stressful. And, you know, after a while, people kind of climbed on board, depending on where you work. Um, and I have to, you know, give some props to my administrators. They were flexible. They allowed people to asynchronously record a lesson when their own children were asleep and post that, you know, and then stay online um, to answer questions when the children finished watching that versus being live because live anything, anything happens live. So um, they were flexible with us and, you know, we're hoping to continue some of that because we don't know what's coming, um, but we'll see. And I'm sure your school practiced fire drills and the active shooter drills. Yes. COVID-19. No drill, no drill, no prep, no. I mean, every year we get the flu shot, right? And they offer it at the school because, you know, there's germs, We germs. My particular building, has close to 2,000 students among the four grades. You know, uh, all this faculty, all this staff, there's germs, we all, you know, you get the flu shot, they sometimes, the pneumonia shot. You know that somebody's gonna get sick. There's mo somebody has mono every year, something happens. But this shut down the world pandemic, there was no prepping for this. This was, we were, definitely not prepared in the um, K through 12 educational field to figure this out. Um, we tried our best. And so in even now in planning for the fall, it's like we've been, you know, charged to plan for all these various scenarios. So we're trying not to get caught like we did in March. Okay, so if this happens, how do we adjust the curriculum? How do we, you know, um, if we're going to be in the building, how does that look? How do we properly bring kids in safely? Um, so we're planning all of this and it's the same. There's this, this is the, you know, live in person test. There is no drill, you know, a scientist would say, repeat the experiment. And you, this is the first time for everybody for, you know, the state asking for these things for the districts trying to prepare them and for teachers like, 
okay, take a deep breath. You know, um, we may be in person and there is not a zero transmission. People are still, you know, getting sick and some of those people might die. So you're trying to weigh the um, information we have about uh, 2% or less. In fact, how many of that, how many people in the building would that be? You know, you start trying to mathematically, at least I do, mathematically go, okay, but that's still a lot of possible people sick or, you know, worse. So it's, uh, it's a, yeah, no drill, as you said, <laughs> no drill for this. It's a go as you go. They always talk about building the plane as you're flying it. This is where, this is where we're at. What scenarios have been identified? And I think it could take us to what does September look like? What have what are the scenarios that are being outlined for the return to school? So this week, at some point, the governor has said that he will come out with how schools are going to open in New York. Now, in the meantime, the New York State Education Department had already charged the districts. Um, last week was their deadline, the 31st, to submit plans, a fully remote plan, a hybrid plan, and a full open of school plan. So, um, you know, create these committees and reopening committees and you're trying to say, well, if we fully open, this is how it'll work. If we are hybrid, here's what hybrid will look like for us. Um, and I wanna say, I think most people are there in um, some form of a hybrid plan from the state, whether that means students will be rotating into school in groups, smaller groups, so it's a smaller um, contact each day, or um, if they can fit, depending on the size of the buildings, um, having small group, large group sessions where a large class um, you know, of 25, five to seven of those kids will be taken out so that they can physically distance in the classroom and they will get some other type of instruction elsewhere, on one day and then another group will rotate out the next day because especially on the elementary level there's a big push to get them in school as well as special education students um, get them there every day and um, the English language learners we were talking about before so that they don't continue to fall behind or they don't progress um, as they want so with that in mind it's been hectic you know trying to keep up with the meetings, you know, thank goodness for an alarm on your phone that goes join, join the Google meet, you know, um, because just trying to figure out what's going to be safest safety as the priority. Um, but how do we actually get any, I don't know what the word normal means anymore, Ryan, but some sort of normalcy for these students, but still we know, you know, a teacher for a brand new five-year-old kindergartner, that might have a mask and a face shield is not normal. You know, telling those kids that age group not to go hug their teacher, they're so social, you know, they just, how, you know, how, how's the teacher supposed to say stop? Like, you know, it's, I don't, we can't see it in practicality working. We know it has to, you know, they're still being toilet trained, some of them, you know, they have accidents, they, you know, you have to touch them. You, uh, I mean, but 
we're planning to say they're going to be teachers will stay six feet away they'll be six feet apart desks will all be the turn turned different way we are now like revamping all of the things that we've been told for years not to do you know you don't put your desk in rows have the kids collaboratively work we're completely like nope that's not what's happening you know you're going completely against what you've been told to do for years because of safety and so um, this planning for September is massive. And once again, we don't know what's going to happen once we're all back together. The numbers are low now because kids aren't in contact with each other. Um, and then, of course, you're dealing with staff members who have underlying health conditions, who are concerned because we are, you know, we're saying that kids are asymptomatic. Um, they can then pass that on to those of us older, you know, and I'm not even in one of the classes, but there's so many things. I have teachers who are pregnant. Are they coming? I have teachers, you know, recovering from cancer treatment. I have, you know, so we're trying to figure out what do we, how do we reasonably accommodate those people? They can't stay home and take an unpaid leave. They need to work, but how are we going to do that? Um, you know, as well as parents who may not be so happy sending their kids. Listen, there's some parents ready to open school tomorrow. You know, <laughs> I have been with my kids since March, take them. But there are parents very, very concerned um, for different reasons. And rightly so. I am not, you know, knocking anybody's uh, concern because we, we shut down when there were cases. So uh, this is like one of those moments where you're, you're definitely planning and hoping you're just not planning to fail because you then have to come up with, well, what if we find or somebody lets us know a kid is positive? Where's the room that he's going to be isolated in till he can be picked up? Like you're just planning these things where you're like, maybe we shouldn't be there. You know, like in the back of your mind, you're just like, well. So we're going to have to temperature screen almost 2,000 children every day as they come into school. When are they getting to class? What time is class going to start? You know, just the, the normalcy who's screening them you know <laughs> all of these fun questions um that a lot of districts and the same thing we talked about before don't all have the funds to do this you know my district is like yeah let's order some sort of plastic barriers in between the desks and let's order you know thermometer scanner uh you know whatever you Every district can't find the money just to provide masks, which it's, you know, the, the regulations say they should have a mask for every child every day. That's, it's, <laughs> it's not really fiscally possible. Uh, I think most districts are gonna do their absolute best and they're gonna try the, to, to be as safe as possible. Um, you know, we were lucky. We had some teachers throughout the time that did have the virus, you know, but, we didn't lose a teacher. Some teachers lost family members, but you know there were like over 70 teachers and staff members in New York City Department of Ed who died. You know, like much bigger size, of course, of of the the boroughs. But um, it's it's a scary thought. Wow, and I imagine you are getting the concerns vary from district to district in terms of the union, the membership of the teachers that you represent. Absolutely. Um, because Long Island's weird. I work in one town, I live in another town, you know, so my teachers are seeing our plan for opening, but where they live may be a high wealth district 
or where they live maybe a low wealth district. So the plans are different. There's no uniformity. So already we're falling into this school is saying they're going to have one group in Monday and Tuesday. And then on Wednesday will be a remote day. And then on Thursday and Friday, another group comes in. Well, what if your school's teaching every day? Where is your child going those days that are remote days? So people are already like, I don't have childcare. Like we're running into, you know, if, if there was a singular plan, not that I don't, um, I love the idea of flexibility. You know, everybody has to try to do what they think will work best for them. But that's also creating some, some problems because you don't, everyone doesn't live where they work, you know? So every town out here has their own school board making a plan and, and um, superintendent deciding how the school's gonna open. So we're, we're having people comparing plans. Well, let me send you my son's school. <laughs> this is a good plan. Why aren't we doing this? You know, and it's like, I respect what they're doing in X town, but um, who we're working with here and who we're trying to, you know, uh, to have this conversation with, they're doing something different. And let's see how we can make this safe and the safest possible. Um, and I have to say, once again, that uh, if you don't have supervisors with open ears, you know, who are like, that's not going to work. You know, they've been out of the classroom for a while, maybe, and they're willing to listen to a teacher that says, you know what, instead of me for example, pushing into a classroom and then having to push into six other classrooms, wouldn't it be better if I just took a small group and, oh, and so, you know, they'll adjust the plan, you know, if they're listening. So I think it's going to require, if this is going to be successful, um, they have to allow some teacher voice in the conversation. Um, if that's not happening, it's going to be disastrous and you're going to have um, angry teachers, nobody wants their child taught by an angry teacher. You're going to have, you know, a situation that is just not tenable. I don't, I don't see, you have to have that communication going back and forth. And then of course, you know, the unions, the teachers, unions, we're trying to be as flexible, of course, as possible with that. But we also still have to protect our members because like I said earlier, we'll be the ones that get more sick than others. Um, and, you know, we, we don't want students sick. We don't want them taking the virus home to a family member who then gets sick and then they're guilty about that. You know, we don't want anybody going through any of that. So this discussion is just the daily, you know, the daily for me for right now, um, because the plans, although they were sent, still need to be tested but there's no way to test them till september you know so we're just talking them out you are at your heart a teacher an educator who wants to shape the minds and hearts and lives of students what do you think we learned about teachers during all this wow um just from my small group and then from, you know, around the state with, you know, things that I do, teachers were just willing to go above and beyond. They were willing to, you know, go to houses to, to get FaceTime outside with a student. They were willing to try to meet with students in small groups at a park. Some teachers were, you know, trying to, most teachers I, I saw everywhere would, um, we did car parades throughout neighborhoods, just honking our horns, trying to show support, you know, for, for the students. Um, it was one of those times where I was so proud to be a teacher that people were just stepping up 
um, left, right, and center. It wasn't easy. It wasn't, you know, it was a tough um, time during that, the closure, but because we were dealing with our own anxieties and fears and, you know, um, any other personal issues, but we knew the kids would be happy if we did this. We knew that if we, you know, planned whatever it was, you know, little parties online, whatever it was, we knew that they would be happy for it because how they were processing this, if we as adults couldn't figure out what was happening with the world and they're young, but they're just super access to everything now, you know, online that it's like, I, I couldn't take in all this information at their age, the way they're taking it in. So it was so important for us to remain a presence. You know, um, we worried for kids because, you know, we were worried about them before. We didn't know, we didn't quite trust their home life before. You know, we were, there was, there's always a few of those kids that you're like, now that they're home every day, you, you know, you started getting anxious for, for students because, you know, at school they would come to you for a snack or, you know, you're like, where are they getting the food now? And the districts were different, doing different things. They still had food programs available, but you just kind of were worried. So I definitely saw just a lot how teachers are so attached to their students and they say, these are my kids. They're, you know, referring to their, their students and, that made me feel good as the union president, like seeing that um, and them willing to donate to food banks in the communities where they worked. And it was, it was great to see that come out, even though it was a tough time. Do you think the grace you mentioned earlier, um, and it was so appropriate attaching grace to some of the students who were falling behind and grace to some of the parents who couldn't do the AP biology or the, the basic algebra, just giving them grace. Do you think grace was, for the most part, given to educators who often deal in challenging situations every day? <laughs> That's a very interesting one. Um, it's so interesting. The tide can turn on educators very easily. It's so, um, and the tide turns on unions a lot very easily in that same regard. So, um, it's interesting. We always like to make sure people know that we care about what we're doing. You know, we care about the students that will will do what we can to make them successful. So I don't always think we get the same grace, but there were so many during this time, so many um, posts and um, videos online that were like, okay, teachers, I see, I see what you've been dealing with. <laughs> I'm so sorry. This is how my child is. <laughs> and I didn't know. I didn't really know until I had to teach them. Um, and so there was a groundswell. Everywhere I looked, there was just appreciation posts. And I would share them with my membership through emails or um, Facebook or something. And, you know, it was great to see like, oh my goodness, what we do isn't easy. It isn't just let me teach your child the alphabet. It's wrangling all these personalities and, you know, trying to still maintain some decorum and still have a curriculum that you have to follow and, and meet. And so it was kind of awesome to see that. But in the same sense, you know, when and if a teacher, for whatever reason, you know, we assume that everyone has a perfect home situation as a teacher, and they may not have wanted to show their house or where they live or what was going on. And so sometimes when a teacher wasn't a a available and able to, you know, focus um, or be live with children, there was a lot of pushback about that. Well, that other teacher's doing it, you know, and it was just like, 
can we show this person some grace? We may not know what that, you know, situation is at their home. You know, we're, we're expecting that things are great and everything's perfect just because they're an adult and they have a job, but that's not necessarily the case. So um, it's, it's hard. It's hard. The union standpoint, you know, unions were definitely trying to hold back some of the, the more um, <laughs> onerous asks, you know, superintendents were like, well, just do this. Oh, that, that, that we can't just do that. You know, it's, it's not that simple. And are, are you going to make us go through a whole process of creating a side agreement for this one time COVID situation? Or will you understand through conversation, because we want to get this done for the kids tomorrow, that we're going to try it this way, or you'll allow some flexibility, or you'll give, you know, you're not willing to um, call someone in for a special meeting via video um, because they weren't able to do this particular thing. So there was some, I think in certain areas, some grace provided to us for sure because we all had our own things going on, um, but the tide can turn easily. We're seeing a little bit of that now in the return, in the you know anxiety of some people and them saying, well, you go to Walmart, you go to Target, right? You, you, you put a mask on, just go teach the kids, you know, and not understanding you don't spend seven hours in the supermarket with thousands of people in a building. Um, it's, it's a different scenario. So we're just trying to balance all of that and, uh, rec you know, have people recognize that we're happy to teach. It's, you know, we chose a profession. This is what we love to do. A lot of us, this is literally our passion. And, this though is if not the same or as worse as you know um throw your body on the child when the shooter comes you know what i mean um it's like i shouldn't be surprised that people are like well figure it out you know the, the kids the kids are asymptomatic you'll be fine don't worry so it's it's an interesting interesting thing interesting thing and what does it say about our educational system you went into teaching with a heart, as I indicated, to shape minds. But are you seeing some things now about our structures and systems which have been more glaringly revealed because of the pandemic? Absolutely. Um, I never saw, I never thought that we would be the savior for the economy. Apparently, if we are, <laughs> because in some states, and New York is way better than other places in this country, teachers are not valued, their salary does not reflect that they are the ones keeping the economy of that town or state open, right? So in places where, you know, the, the transmission rates are high across this country in certain places, and they started school this week, or some of them last week, and I'm thinking, but I know those teachers salaries don't reflect like the the sacrifice you're asking them to make and be there for the kids and you know try to put on the front of happiness and let's come back together and figure this out it's not really worth it if you're looking at the worth of it um fiscally but that's what they're telling us you know like you are so important um in one sense but then in another sense it's like you're in a very um a babysitter is necessary for my child so i can go to work and so if you don't open up the schools, the economy is going to fail. So it, it has definitely, I've, 
it, I don't know why I never thought of it that way, Ryan, before it was not something that I was like, oh, if, we, if schools don't open, parents can't go to, I don't know if why I didn't, maybe it's because I'm not a parent, you know, maybe it's because I haven't had, but that was not something that I thought would be put on our shoulders to, bur you know, to carry, like we, we, if we don't open, people can't go to work, and then therefore the economy is going to fail and it'll be your fault. So there's a, you know, a weird thought process there that wasn't ever a part of why I chose to teach or why I thought um, educating students was important. That wasn't it. So it, it, it has opened my eyes um, a lot in that, in that aspect, because if we're that important, if we are f going to be on the front line with, with your children, then in a lot of these states across the country, you're not paying people well enough to do that. You're, you're definitely not. So that has to be re rethought altogether because you want to attract to your schools then the best, the best of the best. You want people who will, you know, be the best and you are going to always get people who will do it for anything. You know, it's their, it's what they do. It's their passion. They wouldn't do anything else. Um, they, uh, nobody, I think, stays in teaching to get rich. Um, so they have to have a love for it in the majority of the places where people are still teaching, you know, um, it, it, it's definitely not, I think you said it, it's definitely not the path that you thought education would be going. Could you tell listeners about the confirmation you received, obviously going into teaching, teaching the sciences, um, the confirmation you received where you saw minds awakening to this pursuit of biology or, you know, and how your desire to teach was confirmed because of that. It's so funny because you don't always feel the impact right away. Sometimes it'll just be, you know, it, on a day-to-day, -day, you're trying to, here's a curriculum, a good lesson. I want it to be interesting. I hate being bored myself. Let me come up with the power pack, um, you know, quick instructional method plan here and, and make it exciting and um, connect it to real world things so that they can, you know, relate to what you're talking about. And so you're doing that. And if you're getting kids engaged and they're raising their hands and you're like, okay, I did okay today, you know, model lesson, I don't know, but they were with me. And on the longer term, you know, kids will come back the next year or two years later and like, well, I took earth science and I took physics. This was the best class. This, this, you know, bi biology, living environment was it. Um, and then you get kids getting ready to graduate. I'm going to go into nursing. I'm going to go, you know, remember when you talk, and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, we did that. You know, and you get that feedback and it's, it's interesting because you're doing what you love to do and you hope you're getting some of those. Sometimes the faces of the kids that come back and, you know, visit you, they come back from college and tell you they're majoring in you know, I, I look like, I don't know if I thought that kid was that kind of scholar, but I'm glad I had uh, any role in the fact that they're now here. So now, you know, 20 years later, I think about it, I was 22 teaching 18 year olds. They're like my friends on Facebook. And I'm like, you're doing what? Oh, wow. You know, it is, it's super rewarding for me. I'm, you know, watch them and their families and what they're doing. And some are teachers and they will send me a message. 
I got into teachers uh, teaching because of people like you. You made teaching look fun. And I was like, well, because I was having fun. You know, I wasn't, it really was something I was enjoying doing. And they were like, well, yeah, we could tell. We could tell you liked what you were doing. And I think that always made a difference for me. I think I could tell. I think most students can tell if a teacher doesn't like what they're doing. <laughs> I think if people are just going through the motions and that could be, you know, whether they've just been doing it so long that it's, you know, just what, it's like memory, you know, they're just going through the motions. I think students feel that. And then I think some teachers will tiring 30, 32 years teaching, you know, and they're like, I'm going to miss it. To me, you know, back when I first started, I was like, be here that long, you know, but I get it now that I've been doing it for 20 years, you know, I'm like, I still love it. So I think it's super important to get that feedback from time to time. I don't think uh, students even realize, you know, whether it's like a little note they drop you or like I said, somebody will send me a Facebook messenger because now they're married. I don't know the last names anymore. And they're like, no, I was in your class in, you know, 2005. And I'm like, okay, all right. I'm glad you found me because uh, my name's the same. So you, Miss Anthony, look at that. But uh, yeah, it's, it's super, I, I enjoy it. I smile. I always tell them like this made my day because you didn't know, you know, you had a room full of 25, 30 students and you were doing what you did, but something that you did affected them, something, you know, some being su successful in your class helped them feel like they could be successful or anything like that to me is, is rewarding. And obviously the pandemic is forcing you to draw on skills that this is uncharted territory because it's not like you're saying, okay, the school had an incident last week and I'm preparing um, parents, students, and teachers for what has already happened and what's been resolved to move forward. We're now approaching September. You have anxious parents, anxious students, anxious teachers. Where do you draw on? Where is your reserve <laughs> for what? For what is to come. This has been an interesting summer. You're right. You know, usually people are like, oh, those teachers, they have too much time off. Yeah, you know, and honestly, I always teach hard, vacation hard was my motto. I was like, I was always here visiting family. You know, I'd take a vacation, find a real beach. You know what I mean? Right. And I'd be, this has not been that type of summer. And then on top of it, just like I said, all the things where the reserve came from, man, I tell people I, it has to be having some sort of faith. This couldn't come from anywhere else because I, I'm tired, but it's from meetings all day. It's not like, you know, I'm home. I'm home and it's mostly meetings and negotiating this and talking about that and how is this going to look. But it is exhausting because in the back of your mind, you're like, Okay, I'm a little bit responsible for for, for people. I'm I'm really responsible for helping to to craft these plans, or you know, even if we don't have a full say in all of it, in trying to make it work safely in the best way we can. And so there's like a little anxiety, you know, on that. But I just kind of always come back to you know, I know where my heart is. I know that my goal is that everyone is safe when we do this. You know, every now and again, you kind of go. This isn't like I don't see, you know, I don't think this is sustainable. Um, 
when the first person gets sick, how, you know, but you know, you try to keep planning in, in the mindset of it's made it so that we are necessary right now. You know, no one's saying we're first, you know, first responders or anything, but it's made it so that we're necessary. So there is like a need for me to kind of stay motivated to keep us safe. And in, in, in doing that, when I say the us, it's, you know, all the staff members and teachers and custodians and secretarial staff, the aides and monitors, we all have to kind of go through and do the best we can to stay safe. And so we're, you know, things are above us. You know, we have to wait for the governor to say this and we have to see what the federal government will do in terms of funds for schools. And we have to, you know, we're, we're sometimes kind of, um, handcuffed, you know, we, we want to do more, but we can't afford to do more, you know, um, education cuts seem to always come first because in a pandemic, you want to put your funds into healthcare. You want, you know, like, so even during this time, we're dealing with possibility of cuts from the governor for state aid for education, you know, when you would think, well, aren't we important? So you still have to, you know, maintain as positive an attitude in that knowing that you know these things are, are out there and um try to advocate try to encourage members to you know write to the senator send a message you know you're still trying to be active in doing things that will benefit education because you know that it's you know something that will help keep you safe at this point and i think i what i appreciate most about what you've said thus far what i've received is coming from you is this compassion and empathy and this awareness that people may be a little anxious and nervous because we don't have all the answers. That isn't certainly what I believe many Americans have been getting from our leadership in Washington. And I, I, I want to commend you, Cordelia, for standing in the gap and, you know, as we've described, wearing so many different hats and providing just awareness to people who have concerns because this is uncharted territory for most of us. And I'm hoping like most others that, you know, we will be all right. I don't know if you are at liberty to say if there is a proposal, if given the opportunity to, if given the opportunity to speak to our governor and mm -hmm. to tell him, like, what would your recommendations be for, what September would look like. That's a great one. Um, you know what? And once again, it's all, it's sad that a lot of it is, is fiscally dependent because if I thought every student was going to have a similar equitable experience, if we stayed remote, I'd be like, you know what? Just stay remote. But it's, you know, safety wise, there's still, transmission happening so let's not put anybody at risk let's let's try to avoid that at all costs um but the reality is not that's not the case you know um everyone's job can't be done remotely and so we have to take that into consideration in our discussions um and i would obviously ask him to try to help with the equity problems First and foremost, you know, there were overcrowded classrooms in places before this. How are we fixing that? You know, these, these are the things that shouldn't have taken a pandemic to need to be fixed. And so now we're stuck. Um, buildings are old. School buildings are not modern. You know, we're going to be in 
classrooms on the second and third and whatever floor, there's no air conditioning in them. We're going to have a mask on or a face, you know, we didn't have the setup <laughs> to uh, have successful educational experience. We just, you know, we dealt with it and we sweat and we hope we told the kids to pick their heads up and we had to learn through it. But now there's an added uh, risk factor. You know, you can't turn the fan on because the droplets are going to be going. So you just like the day to day experience and trying to deal with, you know, for some people pre K through 12 students. It's, it's something that I would love to have a conversation with him about. And I mean, on the state level, like our state union leaders do speak to the New York State Education Department. Um, we do try to influence. I sat on a couple of those state committees through the summer um, with different stakeholders. But, you know, you, at the end of the day, I want to say, please allow, um, you know, the safest possible opening for everyone. Because what's happening upstate in like Latham, New York, they may not have any transmission happening right now. They're good to go. They could open. They're fine. Um, it's not the same everywhere. So yes, I fully respect that he did so much to keep us here in New York from having even a worse outcome. But um, where the schools are concerned, we weren't set up before this for, for something um, this big, this, this dramatic in the educational system. And that's the problem right now. That's if we had all had equitable resources, if, you know, if we had fixed some of the um, issues before this, we may not be at the point where we are now. And so, yeah, I would love to have that conversation. And, and my suggestion would be don't, don't allow people to have to sacrifice themselves. You know, don't allow students to be put at risk of, you know, taking the virus home. Uh, but I do understand where we all are and that, you know, people have provided summer activities for their children as much as they can do right now. Um, and they're going to need to send their children back. They don't have, you know, the childcare ability in September anymore. They don't have the funds for that. People have lost jobs. People, you know, they're, they're have to go back to work as well. So we, you know, we provide on top of, you know, what we do in the classroom, we, we're, we are providing a service in the sense that that's, you know, where their children are for hours of the day and they can go and look for a new job and, or, you know, do what they have to do. So we have to balance those two things out. But uh, my overall thought would be safety first. If there's a chance that someone's gonna get sick, don't don't put people in that position. And almost finally, I've touched on your personal journey coming to the US from Antigua with parents who had dreams and aspirations for what your life would look like. There is some child from the city who may be engaged um, in terms of wanting to become an educator and having impact like you, you have had in your, your field. Um, what do you say to such a child who is dreaming big dreams, but doesn't know yet what it will look like? Man, it's doable. It's so doable. And you don't see it as you're going through it, you know, when you're living in, you know, the South Bronx and what was, you know, not the best neighborhood. And, you know, I, I, like I said before, my parents definitely sacrificed to avoid me um, being in certain areas and certain um, situations. But the, I think 
the best thing is that the encouragement that you get, you know, you, whether you're, you're listening to them or now, like my parents encourage me to do my best, you know, they, they always did. And that's what all, that's all I did. You know, it, it wasn't like I was uh, number one in the class all the time or something like that, but you know, they, they were happy when they knew I did my best. And so wherever you are, whatever your starting point is, your story can be an example, you know, uh, coming from another country. Now, when I talk to students who come from other countries, I go, I wasn't born here either. You know, everything isn't easy. They think, oh, the teacher, she, you know, she got through it. Things were easy. You're American. And I go, wait, no, I'm not. I was, I was, I came here too. You know, luckily I came here speaking English. I didn't sound like everyone else with a Caribbean accent. So I, I, I think they having the life experience that they have and even struggling at a certain point is something that you can use as a part of making connections with students. And so live, you know, live in that way, live knowing that the journey you're going through uh, to be successful is going to be part of a story that you can actually build on to shape someone else's experience because then they go, oh, so it wasn't always easy for you? No, I had to work. And so let me give you some examples of what that hard work looks like, you know, in and out of, you know, different scenarios. I didn't come from a large school, I felt like a fish out of water. You know, I, I definitely had to adjust and it's possible for you to do the same thing even though it's hard right now. Just because it's hard doesn't mean you shouldn't try, just means you try harder. You know, like just keep plugging away at it and you'll, you'll actually see something come to fruition. It's not gonna be perfect. You know, I have students who come back and say, okay, being away at school was a bad idea for me. You know, I think I need to go to a local community. And I say, okay, that was an experience for you. You learned, you know what I mean? You understand now what, what it is or what it takes to not be successful. So what are we gonna do differently? How do we adjust? You know, how do you pivot and make that a learning experience? So I just, you know, I encourage everyone to just keep faithful, you know, stay motivated and be determined because those are the, the keys, I think, to be successful. Oh, thank you so much. And what does the head of the union hat look like going towards September from here on? Oh, man, the union hat right now is is heavy that's what that's what i'll say it feels a little heavy right now um when i talk to other union leaders on long island or across the state it gives me a little bit of um you know comfort that we are all feeling this way that we are all feeling like we're responsible for our membership we don't want to put them at risk. We're all trying to, you know, discuss or negotiate or uh, plan for the best possible outcome. I'm glad, you know, that I have like a good state leadership, you know, here in New York, they're a pretty strong union, um, the you know, New York State United Teachers. So, you know, you reach out, you try to get some feedback, you try to get some um, good talking points to make to make with your district. And you try to just continue to kind of make sure you're representing them the best way possible because, you know, you don't, you don't want anyone to feel like you're not being transparent. You want to share with them that, yes, I am concerned too. You know, I'm not, you know, pushing anyone back to work without saying, hey, I have some concerns myself. And then even my members who are not overly concerned because they, they're out there too, you know, they're not that worried about um, being back. I wanna listen to them and respect them and you know, try to still though provide a safe environment for them as well. 
So it's, it's you know, a, a lot of thinking, a lot of probably overthinking, but that's all right. Uh, I don't mind uh, trying to strategize, Let's use my science brain and just try to figure, figure my way through it um, and ask for help ask for help when it when when it's necessary because sometimes you know the the leadership role is is like always oh well she has the answer no i do not but i will look into that and get back to you for you know everything from uh benefits and taking a leave and unemployment and what's going to happen when the first case hits and who like you know it's a big big ball of uh questions right now and we definitely have more questions than answers but I'm um, still just trying to make sure we head in a safe direction. That's my number one priority. So Cordelia Anthony is a science teacher at Farmingdale High School since 1999. She's president of Farmingdale Federation of Teachers, New York State United Teachers Board member as well. And Miss Anthony, we thank you so much for sharing and your insight and for showing us that teachers do do a lot to shape the minds of students. Thank you so much for being a guest of the Water Word podcast. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs>
You got, you got marital issues within your home. You suffer from depression, but you come to school every single day and you say, I'm going to leave this in my car because I've got to give my best to these kids. That's what next level teaching is. That's that next level education right there. And you can only do that if you, if you every single day you say, you know what, I'm going to sacrifice me for these kids.